Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and the fact that pizza is a superfood. It hits all the food groups and is shaped like a food pyramid. Think about it. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, who's been on call and awake to do TV spots for Israeli television for four straight days and is now at the peak of his analytical powers. Good morning, Ellie. Hey, Frank. I want to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to listen to us so far, to us yammer and talk to our really fascinating guests. But I also want to remind them to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Google Play, or whatever else they're using to listen to us. And to remind them to follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in pseudonym. Frank and I weren't together last week, but we're here this week, and we want to talk about the healthcare debacle a little bit. Several other podcasts, including the one with a couple former Obama administration folks, which name we will never say on this on our podcast, have made a big deal over the fact that the GOP has been lying about the ACA since its inception, and that the GOP had no consensus plan ready to go on day one. And that's all true, but it's also ass. Uh, we have the best words on our podcast, and our podcast looks like it was decorated by Middle Eastern despot because it's decked out in gold leaf and marble. It's luxurious. Indeed. And we do indeed have the best words. And here are two of them. Malice and incompetence. This administration is driven, famously driven by those two imperatives, malice and incompetence. So whenever they try and do something, think about their initiatives, their agenda, their agency in that, in that context. Is this being driven by malice? Is it being driven by incompetence? And is it being executed by, with malice or is it being executed with incompetence? Uh, it's like a, the, this whole administration is like a much worse version of Night of the Hunter, a really shit version where you know, you've got Trump as, uh, as Robert Mitchum with these two incredibly long <laughs> words tattooed across his knuckles, you know, across his tiny knuckles. You know, let me tell you a story about malice and incompetence. Yeah, I mean, incompetence right now is currently the reigning champ and defending its title with a plum. Yeah, it's just, I mean, in, in the healthcare debacle was really an unexpectedly early title fight between malice and incompetence, and incompetence just beat malice straight out of the ring. Yeah, uh, bloodied and destroyed it. Yeah, it wasn't. It, well, it, there was an early period when I was pretty sure the Freedom Caucus was going to fold, and it looked like malice had incompetence on the ropes. Uh, and then, you know, in classic rope dope style, incompetence just came back out and absolutely leveled uh, the administration and the and Paul Ryan's malice. So, you know, incompetence the winner and and still uh, world champion. So this is, and this raises the uh, a, a number of, of it, this raises a number of opportunities, including as incompetence I, generally does. As incompetence, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, very very few people know that the Chinese symbol for incompetence is also the Chinese symbol for opportunity. <laughs> Not many people know that, Ellie. Yeah, yeah, and apparently so this, they're they're both just a giant middle finger. That this this is yeah this is exactly it. They're both just a, a they're both just a, a picture of uh, you know of the of this administration. Uh, can we dispense with the idea? that Ryan is some kind of a wonk or a wunderkind of some sort. That's, you know, we've been hearing that particular canard for years and years and years that Ryan has some sort of superhuman understanding of policy or that he really, you know, that he's, you know, when it comes to discussing the ins and outs of a proposed piece of legislation that he's, you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof and breathes fire. Well, yeah, uh, because he and Rich Lowry were talking about repealing Medicare while they were drinking out of a keg in college. Yeah, I want to party with those guys. Yeah, right. Those guys were those guys. Those guys knew what it took to be cool. There were so, definitely women there. 
There were definitely, that's exactly right. There were, there were so many women there and it was, it was a, it was a glorious scene for Paul. They, all they could do was line up and listen to Paul Ryan dispensing beer at the keg and talking about how they're going to strip poor people of healthcare. This is the tax on your getting this beer. You have to listen to me, you know, rail like Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, so I mean, you know, on the idea that Ryan is some kind of wunderkind, the, this bill was a flaming garbage scouse sinking into a sludge lake. I mean, there was just there was no coherent principle behind it. We could go on and on about this at great length, but you know, I, mean, I think I think the epitaph of this piece of trash has already been written. Um, it was, in essence, a solution to torture that word beyond all recognition in search of a problem. It didn't really have a kind of it didn't have a coherent purpose, and it wasn't clear what its constituency was, except to allow some Republicans to say that they repealed Obamacare and replaced it with, again, a flaming garbage scow sinking into a sludge lake. Right, and I think that's kind of really the interesting thing, and that you know, a lot of commentary has sort of questioned the idea that they had seven years to come up with something better. Why wasn't there a consensus draft ready to go? And that's a really good, important point. But it's sort of more broad and ideological than that. It's actually that there is a reasonable argument. I don't know if it's reasonable, but there is a logical argument to make that the government, the federal government should have no place in healthcare. And there are people who want to be consistent about that and let them be consistent about that. What this bill did was took all those people who don't believe healthcare should, that the federal government should have a role in healthcare and said, okay, we're not really going to get rid of all of it because that polls really poorly and we'll all be out of jobs. We're just going to like kind of do it around the edges. Yeah, this is exactly it. And and the problem and this and this really raises the problem for the GOP, which is there is no consensus on what the health on, on what they want on healthcare. And actually, John Boehner, who is probably the happiest man in America right now, uh, you know, because he doesn't have to deal with this. No, oh, he's bathing in probably Trump wine. He's bathing. He's exactly right, John Boehner, up to his neck in Merlot, as he as he always dreamed of being in retirement. Um, that's also how he wants to be buried, I hear. No, John Boehner sitting back enjoying a glass of Merlot, smoking six packs of cigarettes a day. He's out there living the life. Uh, John Boehner pointed out, someone asked him, uh, as this thing was unfolding, what he thought about it. And Boehner's point, which I think is a really interesting one, is in the years that he served in Congress, the GOP was never had a consensus on healthcare. There was never a, a party-wide agreement on what to do about this. And And to a certain degree, that's just him... I think in you know in enjoying being not you know you know retired and not the guy in charge of this debacle anymore, but it, I think it's actually quite revealing. Which is, you've got the Republican caucus has people who, as you say, Ellie, have a a, a coherent and intellectually, if not morally, defensible. Uh, view that the government really doesn't have a role in providing healthcare. Actually, I'm not even sure it's intellectually coherent. I don't think it is. Certainly not morally, but it is nonetheless a position, right? It's a position yeah. around which you can construct a governing philosophy. And and then you've so you've got so you've got those people, but that is not a workable option at this point. So you've got the Tuesday, the so-called Tuesday group, which is the, you know, the so-called little bit more moderate uh, side of the Republican caucus. Moderate again, a word being tortured beyond recognition. Uh, slightly more moderate group. That really kind of, I suspect in their heart of hearts, they yeah, want moderate kind of, like Attila the Hun was moderate compared to Genghis Khan. That this is, yeah, this is exact. This is exactly it. His aspirations were a little bit more modest. He just wanted West, just wanted, you know, the greater part of Europe as opposed to the entire known world, as far as the name one can right. see. And he's not salting um, the goddamn earth on everybody after when he leaves the sure, village. Exactly. I mean, so, you know, it just, it just goes to show that when you're being, that when you're being invaded and your village is being burned, it technically could be worse. Yeah. All right. So the Tuesday group wants something like, 
you know, I suspect, and again, I, I know I don't, I don't presume to be in these people's heads or to speak for them, but I suspect in their heart of hearts, realistically, they want kind of the status quo ante before Obamacare, right? Like they, you know, we go back to before the individual mandate, which is what really pisses them off. Yep. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe do a little bit of deregulation, maybe strip a little bit away from, uh, yeah, maybe deregulate a little bit. Uh, you know, there's there's probably certainly some things that we can do around the tax code, but for the most part, around healthcare, but for the most part, it's it looks a lot like uh, what healthcare looked like before Obamacare, except with a little less, uh, except with a little even less even less government. But that's no longer an option, right? Because what we have found, based on the way Obamacare started polling, it goes from being this albatross around the Democratic Party's neck, according to some analysts to actually a fairly popular piece of uh, public legislation. And the reason, of course, I think this is right, and there was a good, there's a, a, a good, a couple of good pieces on this early in the debate, is, uh, is loss aversion, right? When right. it's easy to hate something until someone threatens to take it away and you see what you have without it. Right. Uh, so this is why the Tuesday group can't get behind a blanket repeal because, and especially after the CBO scores came out, we saw how many people would lose health insurance. We saw what happened to the premiums of those who were able to keep it, especially seniors. So they, what they want is not an option. And what the Freedom Caucus wants is something closer to, you know, are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? Right. Better they die and decrease the surplus population. I mean, it really was like, you know, we are, we're not just the status quo ante Obamacare, but, but I mean, before the concept of government in healthcare ever emerged, that's what they want to go back to. And, and you sort of looked at the end of the of what their of what the bill looked like with their proposed changes, and it was essentially your insurance company is no longer obliged to provide you with with insurance. I mean that was right. kind of boiled down to. So you know, and those two impulses, the Freedom Caucus is you know what the, what the Freedom Caucus wants is totally incompatible for the so-called Tuesday group. Those people and will get them kicked out of office. And the Freedom Caucus doesn't care. And this is why you're not. This is why you can't forge a consensus between these two sides. Yeah, and I find it remarkable that you know one of Trump's initial, um, or one of the things that got leaked out to the press was that he was upset with Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus forcing him into doing healthcare first before doing taxes. He wanted to do taxes first, or maybe he wanted to do infrastructure first, or maybe he wants to do Middle East peace first. Who the fuck knows at this point what he actually wants to do first? But there was a reason that healthcare had to come first. First, it was a prerequisite for taxes because of the way that the reconciliation rules in work in the Senate. To do taxes, they need to be able to create a structure that's budget new, that's deficit neutral with less than 60 votes. So in order to get that, you had to get the $700 billion savings, whatever they were going to get from this health care plan, in order to be able to do taxes. So the first thing it shows you is that A, Trump doesn't understand how Congress works. And B, he thinks tax reform is going to be easy for some reason, and that you're going to be able to get a consensus with that. And it's an insane Which is truly the idea of a madman. Yeah, that's an insane position to have. I mean, we talked about in our alt-centrism article about Tip O'Neill and, and, and Ronald Reagan, you know, bending elbows together. They were doing that because the only way to deal with tax reform was to be just absolutely blitzed out of your goddamn mind. This and is exactly it. This is an drinking by need. <laughs> Good people, if you think if you're thinking about getting into tax reform, it is imperative that you drink a very great deal. These we step, you know, listen to us, we're professionals. Yeah. I mean, tax reform is quite literally something that every single candidate from any party running for any office in the land, from dag dog catcher up to president, has campaigned on for the last 30 years. And there's a reason it hasn't happened. I blame it mostly on accountants, but you know. There are other reasons that people will say that it doesn't happen. But for him to think that it's going to be easy is ludicrous.
Yes, I, that's that's absolutely right. I am looking forward with great anticipation to this well-oiled machine. This, you know, this, I mean, this superlative uh, monstrosity of malice and incompetence lurching crazily toward tax reform, which again, yeah, it, it's something that if, it's something that people have wanted to do for a long time. If it was really easy, it would have happened already. It's not to say it can't be done, but it would take, I mean, it, you know, put it better than this guy I've tried. We'll put it that way. Yeah. And so following, and, and my favorite part of what, of the fallout from the collapse of, of Trump care has been, and, and there's so many wonderful elements of this. I mean, I could just take a bath in the various takes that we've seen recently, oh, it's but phenomenal. my absolute favorite is someone in the white house briefing against Jared Kushner for having been out of town in the week it fell apart. Yeah. He and Ivanka went on a vacation and the idea was if, if only Jared had been here, you know, the idea that Trump is mad at him and if Jared had been there, things might've been different. And I absolutely love this. And I have to say, I think he's right. You know, I mean, how dare the president of the United States son-in-law leave town, leaving only the president, the vice president, the entire White House staff and the entire and the and the whole of the Republican leadership to push their legislative agenda. It's a crime. And it is a violation of the proudest standards of public service in America. I mean, when Truman ordered uh, the when Truman, when Truman ordered the bombs that ended world that ended World War II in the Pacific, his son-in-law was right there with him every step of the way. <laughs> when Warren Harding was was turning a blind eye to corruption on a grand scale, his son-in-law was right in there with him, not paying attention to what may or may not have been happening around the Teapot Dome. This is the son, the president's son-in-law is by constitution one of the most powerful and important roles in the United States government, and that Jared abrogated his responsibilities in that role is is a shame. It is a shame. It is sad. To borrow the word of the president, it sad. is sad. Exclamation point. Sad. Sad. Yes. So, <laughs> and 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 without Jared there, Trump, of course, managed to completely fuck this up. I mean, in the and in and in you know ways too many to numerous. But my my favorite of those particular ways as we're going through my favorites of what happened last week is. Oh, so we're moving Trump's, off the policy into the politics. Off the policy and into the politics. All right, let's dig in. We're back back onto firmer ground where you know we can at least pretend to to have some insight into what we're talking about. Right, no footnotes uh, needed. That's never that's exactly that's never stopped us before. <laughs> uh, so Trump, uh, you know, absent Jared to hold his hand, uh, fucks this up in any number of ways. My favorite is threatening the Freedom Caucus and telling you know, and, I mean, the idea is you know we're gonna you know I'm I'm gonna come for you if you don't vote for this, but I know you're gonna vote for it. I'm gonna but if you don't, I'm gonna come after you. Yeah, he's making a list and checking it twice. That's exactly, that's precisely it. You can't threaten the Freedom Caucus. You can't storm into the kennel and threaten to release the hounds because they are the fucking hounds. These are the attack dogs. The Freedom Caucus are the people who run against you. If you do something wrong that pisses off the Republican base, right? That's, and Trump, that he tried, and Trump tried to strong arm the alpha Freedom Hound Mark Meadows in front of all of them and really painted him into a corner. I mean, the idea is even if Meadows had chosen to go, had wanted to vote yes or work with him on this, as soon as, you know, when Trump told him, you're either, you know, you're going to do this because you have to, because I tell you to, at that point, Meadows, you know, if, if he wants to stay the alpha dog, of the uh, of the Freedom Caucus, and and believe me, there is nothing more important in Mark Meadows' life than that he retain that position. Uh, that he's to, he was completely without, he was completely out of options. Yeah, I mean, so these, these are the, passive aggressive teenagers who will do the exact opposite of what you ask them to do. Yeah, this is exact. Yeah, this is precisely it. Uh, and you know, you can't. That's you can't. You, you and it's you can't go in. You can't give these people orders because resistance is what they do. 
Uh, and especially for someone like Mark Meadows, it's just not going to work. So, you know, our deal maker in chief did exactly the one thing that any fool could have seen you shouldn't do in that situation. Yeah, I mean, you can't threaten people who A, have safe seats and B, whose entire reason for being and being in office is to burn the whole goddamn thing down. What leverage do you possibly have against them? I mean, you just mentioned that Trump is the ultimate deal maker. But he didn't understand he'd been handed a deck of cards for a game of poker, but it was missing not only the aces, but all the face cards. Yeah, that's exactly it. And speaking of other people who don't know how to, you know, who, you know, who are who really shouldn't be allowed to play poker, among, among other things. Uh, I absolutely love it because Trump wasn't the only one who tried to play hard guy with uh, with the caucus. Steve ba- uh, Steve Bannon rolls in and tries to do Quite the literally hard- rolls. It looks like he's rolls, up. A, exactly it looks right. like he's we up a couple pounds. That's exactly right. They sort of, you know, they you know they they wheel him, you know, they roll him in gently. Uh, deposit him in a position, seat him upright so he can look straight at the GOP caucus, and he tells them that you don't have a choice. You have to vote for this thing. There isn't. There's sort of opening remarks to the uh, the visiting delegation of Republicans. You know, you you know, you're going to have. There's no choice. You have to vote for this thing. Yeah, it's like uh, what was that? The Oscars when they wheeled in Anthony Hopkins and he, uh, on the board like he was in Silence of the Lambs wearing the mask. They did that with 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 That's Bannon. They, and they just kind that. of popped it off, and he said, "You don't have a choice." And then asked for some Chianti and fafa beans. And it, it's it, it's like I mean, one of my one of our favorite shows collectively is Justified, and it's you know that first scene that the first scene where Raylan Givens, the marshal, goes and threatens Tommy Bucks, the guy he's 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 trying to get out of town. In the opening scene, he says, "You got he had told him you got twenty four hours to leave town, or I'm going to shoot you." That's not really yeah. a, that's not really a great that how does that work? Where yeah, are you this is up? exactly yeah this is exactly it. Abandon thinks he's Raylan Givens. Uh, and, but Bannon is the guy who gets shot by Raylan Gibbons. That's yeah. what's that, that's, that's how this thing works. So, and then have, when it becomes clear, this thing isn't going to pass, then Bannon wants to vote anyway. So he and Trump can make an enemies list mm-hmm. of Republicans who voted against it and do what with it? Tough guy. I mean, I guess they want to make sure that when any of these guys stay at Trump hotels, the made short sheets, their beds. That's exactly right. We're going to short sheets, short sheet their beds in Trump hotel rooms. We're going to mail them some shitty steaks. Or, you know, give them all Trump ties with no scotch tape to hold the short end down. That's exactly right. Short-sheeted, shitty stakes. We're going to smell that. We're going to give them ties and no scotch tape, and we're going to bankrupt all their businesses. Right. <laughs> this is what Trump does to his enemies list. Let me look after your financial interests for five, for five years. I swear to God, by the time I'm done with it, you won't have two pennies to rub together. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to so. simplify your finances by getting rid of them all. This is exactly, this is precise. This is what we mean. Oh, God, do you think that's what he means by simplifying the tax code? I do. We're just going just to turn America into an unsafe credit risk by bankrupting us all. Yep. What do you mean there's no Chapter 11 for a, for a sovereign country? <laughs> so this whole thing sinks beneath the waves with the White House and Republican leadership holding hands and singing, Nearer, my God, to thee, nearer <laughs> to thee. And that's the end. Yeah. Right. Uh, which, I mean, it, and there have rarely been pieces of legislation that, deserved such a horrific death. But what really got to me was uh, Friday afternoon, Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and the rest of the uh, Democratic uh, House leadership, including Joe Crowley, just looming all over all of them like some sort of, I don't know, Hodor from Game <laughs> of Thrones. And I actually like Joe, Joe Crowley, but he just looks out of place back there. Like his head's he, not... He is, even... a, he is a fan favorite, especially after the sacrifice he made. You know, yeah. I'm not... No, 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 sorry. The, almost an incoming spoiler for great Game of Thrones fans, but not quite. Sorry, not please quite. continue. We're not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, Joe Crowley doesn't even fit in the frame of the camera when they're focused on Nancy Pelosi. But this press conference I found was just remarkably tone deaf. You've got somebody out there who is touting the fact that the Republican bill went down. 
and she's talking about how, you know, Obamacare is saved and we're all going to be great. And to me, it's like essentially like somebody who's saying they've got a bus, it's dilapidated, there are no seatbelts, it breaks down all the time, they don't know how much longer it's going to last, it's running out of gas, there's an oil leak and a couple of the fan belts are out, but it's still probably going to get you from point A to point B. And you're beyond excited that they didn't take your bus away rather than saying they didn't take our bus away, but we've got this, we've got three ideas that we want to do to make sure that the bus is in better shape. It was just so incredibly tone deaf considering that the Democrats know at this point that one of the big problems, but big things that was wrong with the Hillary campaign and kind of the Democratic campaign nationally was that they just weren't paying attention to what people were saying. And people have been saying, okay, don't take away our health care, but fix it a little bit because this isn't great. Our our deductibles have gone up, our monthly payments have gone up, and it, it, there needs to be some fixes to it. Yeah, I th- the the point to, that you're making is absolutely right, that this is, you know, people I, people have come around on, the, on Obamacare, on the ACA, when it looked like it was going to go away. Uh, that doesn't mean they're in love with it. Uh, there, you know, and, and acknowledging that it has some limitations and proposing some fixes, I think would put, would put democratic leadership on the right side of history and on the right side of the issue. Uh, and, and, and now that Ryan is making noise and, and apparently Trump is as well, that they might actually look at this again. Uh, there's some story, look at, uh, at picking up Trump care again, and that Trump is apparently muttering, uh, about a desire to negotiate with Democrats. Uh, there were a couple of stories about that over the weekend. Well, hard to see why he would given how well he got on with the freedom caucus. Now that uh, Trump is talking about it, uh, maybe negotiating with Democrats before he blames them, before they, you know, before they're the heroes or the villains again, you know, he's whatever, whatever Trump is thinking, Ryan is making noise that they might pick this issue back up again. It's time for the Democratic leadership to lay down some markers about what, if there are going to be fixes to uh, to Obamacare, you know, new measures to improve health care, we need to lay down some markers about what those should be. Done a good job saying it can't, you know, this, whatever comes next can't take people's health care away and it can't make it more expensive for people who already have it. But there's some other things, there's some other markers that are worth laying down as well. Yeah, I mean, so the Democrats, you know, we knew that people didn't want their health care taken away. They wanted it to be cheaper. They wanted it to be more effective. They wanted their deductibles go down. They wanted more options. Those are all great things. The Republican bill took all of those things away. So the Democrats should say, well, we're not only going to do those things. We're not only going to make sure that we keep those things. We're going to make them better. And one of the ideas that's incredibly popular when it comes to health care, the first one being uh, the uh, uh, insurance companies can't deny coverage for pre-existing conditions, which is a monumental piece of legislation. That alone is worth the price of admission for the ACA at this point. And the idea that people can stay on their insurance until they're 26 is really important considering it's taking people longer to get through college or get jobs, etc., etc. But one idea that Trump has repeatedly bandied about, and it may or may not make be a logical move to make, but it's something that is popular because people think that it will work, is breaking down state borders so that somebody in Massachusetts can buy insurance in California and somebody in Idaho can buy insurance in Georgia. Now, again, this may not actually work economically, as most things that Trump talks about don't. But at least Democrats say, it's, we're going to look into it. We're going to see how that's going to work. Get it scored out. Do, you know, present some studies on it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There, and you know, we could talk about uh, bringing back some of the insure the insurer policies that were sure. around between 2014 and 2016 that have since uh, that have that have since gone away. Offering some more subsidies to the insurance industry to make the make it a little easier for them to take these uh, higher risk pools. Which, to be clear, 
both of the, I can't believe I'm even saying these because both of these are buy-offs for the insurance industry. But I mean, to be fair, these days, what isn't a buy-off for the insurance industry? Look, I mean, they're, and, and, they're, publicly, and, they're publicly traded companies. They have, a, they have to make a profit. Sure. Unless we go single payer, unless and until the United States goes single payer, everything at some level, every system that we propose is going to involve a fairly significant buy-off for the insurance industry. That's yeah. just the, the, the way the environment is right now. Yeah, I mean, another idea that they could have re-raised re is the idea of expanding Medic Medicare to people under the age of 55, uh, especially now that Joe Lieberman is no longer an elected member of the Senate. Maybe it'll have a chance of going through. Absolutely. And this is one of my absolute favorites. I mean, not only does it, not only are there good things that happen to the numbers when you think about expanding Medicare to people under 55, but also it gets us closer to the kind of economy of scale stuff that you get from single payer and systems like it. So that, that actually would be a, and politically, I think there's probably some mileage in that because Medicare has tested and continues to test quite well. Yeah. It's actually, it's, you know, you bring up a really interesting point with kind of that it tests well and it expands the pool. And you know, this is sort of a little slightly off topic, but one of the things that John Kerry pushed in 2004, um, and there's very few things that he pushed for that are memorable, but one of them was the idea that essentially the government would take the top, you know, one half percent of most expensive um, health cases and it would just be on the government's dime because it would be a bigger pool and the government can bargain better. Basically, put those people on Medicare. And mm -hmm. if you look, you know, just to, you know, actuarially, people over the age of 55 are actuarily more likely to be ill than people under that age. So by putting that on the government's tab, you're in theory lowering prices for everybody else because you've removed them from the pool. Yeah, exactly. There's a, and the, none of these are total fixes, but these are all things that could be done to expand access and to, to bring down costs. Another thing is the importation of, uh, of generics and, and, uh, and cheaper drugs, especially from Canada. And you know, letting Medicare negotiate directly with uh, with pharmaceuticals for lower rates. Again, this is not big, sexy stuff, but these are all things that, if the idea is we are going to uh, make improvements to and around the ACA that will help bring down costs and expand access, this is the kind of stuff that we could be talking about. Yeah, I mean, these are consent, likely consensus ideas, or at least consensus ideas with enough moderates in the House to potentially get some Republicans to turn around and say, "Hey, that's not a bad idea," or a couple senators to come out and say, "Hey, that's not a bad idea. Let's look into doing something together." And this isn't kind of, you know, in our, you know, people should go back and listen to our alt-center alt rants. I don't think that this is one of them. I actually think that there is a devious way, there's a devious perspective here of if Pelosi and Schumer come out with a couple things that Republicans just can't possibly say no to, you've now boxed Trump, who's the ultimate deal maker and really doesn't care about anything ideologically. You've boxed him into a corner saying, here's a great deal that we created for you. Can you sign on to it? Um, and the fact that they haven't done this yet to me is just kind of further proof that there is a dire need for new leadership, particularly in the House. Um, I think Schumer is, you know, doing the best he can holding down the Senate. But I, I mean, I've had issues with Nancy Pelosi for years as the leader, but I think in particular now, um, she's out of touch. She's way too entrenched into the leadership. And more importantly than that, she has become such a recognized villain, almost, the, you know, to the level of a, a superhero villain for the right that there's nothing that she can ever do that's positive. So let's get some new faces in there. You know, if it's Tim Ryan, if it's Seth Moulton, if it's Josh Gottheimer, whoever, you know, whoever it might be, let's get some new faces in there. Speaking of new faces. And unpopular people. And unpopular people. <laughs> yes. Speaking of, speaking of, uh, you know, of, of forcibly, in, uh, forcibly uh, installed new faces, Trump's approval rating right now, 36, 37%. I've seen it as high as 41, but historically, and I mean, I mean, historically doesn't begin to describe it, but 
historically low for a president at this at this point uh, in uh, in his term. If yeah. his approval the, rating the last, dips, the last time somebody had this bad approval ratings, they were writing it out with X's and I's. Yeah, this is the, that's really this is exactly right. This is this is precisely it. This is this is grim stuff, man. Like, uh, so Trump. This is this is basically Czar Nicholas. Uh, Nicholas right before the end. Uh, he, although he, although even he, I don't think ever really dipped below thirty four. But speaking uh, so of, his, of speaking of his Rasputin. <laughs> that's, yeah, speaking of Rasputin, there we go. That's it. Nailed it. Thanks, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the podcast professionals. You've just you, you know we're give, we're giving you gold, people. Okay. <laughs> Trump's approval dips below 35%, let's say, uh, you know, somewhere down to where it's, you know, somewhere between 30-35%. Who goes first, Bannon or obvious anagram, Reince Priebus? Yeah, uh, I think this is a really interesting question because people have been talking about, oh, Reince is, Reince is going to be the first person out or Spicer is going to be the first person out or one of this group of kind of the uh, forced upon Trump uh, GOP um, um, uh, tradition holders. Um, but Bannon has no friends anymore. It's him and Stephen Miller sitting in a corner, uh, you know, over a cauldron thrown in like dragon feet and, and mistletoe or some shit to scare the crap out of the, out of the villagers. Um, plus with Steve Bannon versus Reince Priebus, Bannon wants to burn everything down. So there is a much better chance he will offend the Dauphin. Yes. As such. And you don't want to offend the Dauphin or indeed uh, even attempt to pronounce the Dauphin. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, could good... we could just call we could just call him Jared, but <laughs> we could just call it the Jared. No, that's a new. Eventually, it'll be known as the. It'll be, eventually, will be known as the Jared. Yeah. No, that, I mean, those are. That is a good point. Uh, Bannon is certainly on some pretty thin ice. Uh, I, you know, I would say, I would say, getting rid of Reince Priebus, and I should say that it is Charlie Pierce, the uh, the terrific political journalist for uh, for Esquire, who, I who first identified him as an obvious anagram. Yeah. Uh, so credit where due. Um, getting rid of uh, of obvious anagram rights, uh, Priebus is the less sensible call. Getting rid of Bannon would solve a lot of problems. Uh, would make life a lot easier for Trump, and therefore, I think that's why he's going to get rid of Reince Priebus first. Uh, he, that's that's whichever way is the mature and sensible and reasoned decision versus the kind of thing that you would do if someone woke you up from a deep sleep and you were angry and hung over and, and sort of startled do that thing, do that latter <laughs> thing. You'll have a sense of what Trump is up to. So I would actually say if you have, you know, if I were a betting man and, and in many cases I am, uh, I would put money down on Priebus being the one to leave before Bannon does. Do you want to put odds on it? I would honestly, I would give you even up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. So with that, uh, friends, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's great to be back on the air with Frank after a one week, uh, uh, loss. Um, please be sure to subscribe and rate us and obviously absolutely follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in pills. That's seven weeks, fewer losses than Notre Dame had last year. Jesus. You can't just one episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Frank, with that, where are we taking ship this week? We take ship this week for Cyprus because, like our friend Paul Manafort, we friend have a large pod. number. Friend of the pod, friend of the pod, because like friend of the pod, Paul Manafort, we have a large number of uh, bank accounts there that require some immediate attention. And by immediate attention, we mean uh, they need to be closed and covered up. We have a great deal of shredding to do. We have a large number of people to bribe to keep silent. Uh, and, uh, and, and frankly, we're just going to be, we have a number of things that we need to do and most of them almost immediately. So, uh, we'll bring you back some, uh, olives, I guess, and other legitimate business items, uh, from Cyprus. So friends, 
We take ship now for Cyprus. Take care. Thanks.